0: Both of them will be informing our our sermon text, but we'll focus especially on, on Revelation chapter 7. But first, in Ephesians chapter 2, let's read verses 4 through 7. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. i turning over now to Revelation chapter 7. Verses 9 through 17, although our focus will be simply on verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation, and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Those who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more. Nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray once more. Our God and Father, we ask that you would grant us understanding in your word, that you would enlarge Christ in our sight pray that you would keep your servant from preaching a diminished Christ, a Christ less than what is presented to us in the scriptures, but also that your servant would not go beyond the scriptures, but that I would simply preach the Christ as he is, and as he has been revealed to us in your word, the greatest Christ there is. It's in his name that we pray, Amen. God's mercy Paul says is rich. He characterizes God as being rich in mercy. If we were to begin to unpack that statement, what well, what would that look like? What would that mean to say that God is rich in mercy, that his pockets are deep with mercy? We might begin by saying That God is rich in mercy because his grace stoops to the lowest sinner. That his grace stoops to sinners who are incapable of themselves of turning towards him. We would say that God's mercy is rich because it is so deep, reaching to such miserable uh, depths. We would say it's rich because it elevates those sinners to the highest heights and seats them with Christ in the heavenly places, sits them on the throne with Christ. And to this we give a hearty amen. Yes, God's mercy is rich because that is what it has done for us, and that is most immediately what is in view in Ephesians chapter 2. But is that all that is in view? Paul will, in the following chapter of Ephesians pray that his readers would comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height and what is the surpassing, the the measure of God's love which surpasses knowledge. Which is to say that he prays that the saints would know God's love comprehensively in all of its dimensions. So this morning I want to focus in on just one of those dimensions. We could have a whole series on the depth of God's mercy, on the height of God's mercy. But this morning we take up simply the width of God's mercy. You might think of a rubber band. Think of a rubber band, and it, you, children, you can do this at home, uh, you can stretch it out vertically in one direction. And if you look at it closely, you'll notice that it it contracts in the horizontal dimension. When we think of God's love, we are prone to a rubber band misconception. That we think of God's love as being rich in mercy. That it is able to extend to the lowest depths and reach to the highest heavens, which it does. But do we think it contracts like a rubber band as it endeavors to lift and strain to lift sinners to such glorious heights. Those of you who have uh, been around before, set up on a uh, church picnic or at vacation Bible school or before a summer uh, summer picnic or a wedding, something of that sort, you may have seen the, the canopy tents that are sometimes set up. And the canopy tents are are these very interesting devices that when you you begin to pull them out in one direction, it begins to unfold in all the directions. As you you pull the legs out this way, the legs also expand out this way, and the center of the, the canopy rises as you do so. I would suggest to you that that gives us a better illustration for what it means when we talk about God being rich in mercy. That God has a mercy that is rich and, and expansive in all of its dimensions. That one dimension does not suffer, even as the other dimensions are enlarged. And so we take up this idea of a God whose mercy is wide, as well as deep and as well as high. take up this idea of god's rich wide mercy under three points we know that god's mercy is wide for the number that it saves for the proportion that it saves and for the diversity that it saves god's mercy is the the width of it is seen for the sheer number of people that it saves I will argue, and second point, that we can also understand that to refer to the proportion of mankind that is saved. And finally, we see God's width in the diversity of those who are saved. So first, the, the number of the redeemed. We read in Revelation 7, verse 9, John writes after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count a multitude whose number is unknown to everyone you might suggest that well is this just hyperbole is this just overstatement is this just a manner of speaking that John is using that you see a large crowd and it's it's really big so you say oh it's countless is it really unable to be numbered? Well, if it is overstatement, and I'm not convinced that it is, I think that we should take this at face value, that when we see the full number of the redeemed, it will be a number which we cannot number, which we cannot sum up. But even supposing it is overstatement, it's not so by much. Previously. In Revelation, John has seen vast quantities of beings. Go back to chapter 5, and he sees a, a vast army of angels. And he says that their number is myriads of myriads, and thousands upon thousands. Myriad is 10,000. So you do the arithmetic, ten thousands times ten You're talking at least 100 million. And many times more than that. Hundreds of millions and hundreds of millions times thousands and times thousands. But then when he looks at the redeemed, he doesn't give a figure like that. He doesn't say the number was ten thousands times ten thousands. But he goes bigger. And he says, no one can count how many I saw. Many of us have questions that we would like to ask Jesus when we see him. Perhaps some of you have uh, questions of your own. Perhaps they're lighter questions, more more silly questions, such as what, what language was spoken before the Tower of Babel? what language did Adam and Eve speak? Yeah, I think there are at least two assumptions we can make when we we think about getting to ask Jesus questions. The first assumption that we might make wrongly is that seeing Christ won't radically reprioritize the questions we want to ask that the questions we have now are going to be the same questions that we have when we see Christ in his glory, or that we'll even want to ask questions. That we won't say, I have my questions, but right now, it's enough for me simply to worship. But the second uh, assumption that we might make that, that can be wrong and misleading is that Christ will answer every question that we put to him. Supposing we were to put to him the question, just how many of us are there? Just how many did you redeem? I'm not certain that he would give us a direct answer. I'm not certain that he wouldn't give the answer he gave to Abraham Go count the stars for number. And that we would go and begin to count one, two, three, but hardly get past two or three before we fell down in worship again as we considered Christ's mercy as it was displayed in the lives of those two or three. Could it be that when John says he saw a multitude that no one can number, he means to say that it's a Trinitarian secret, known only to Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit, that the number is something that will be invited to explore and to search out, but never arrive at a a bottom-line sum of what that quantity is? You believe that God saves sinners, sinners who are incapable in and of themselves of turning towards God. You believe that God saves the lowest of sinners. But do you believe that He will save many such sinners? You believe that Christ will save many sinners. You may even believe that He will save more than you can count. But do you believe that he will save more than anyone can count? Do you believe that he will save so many that the sum total is known only to himself within, with the Father and spirit? We read that God uh, said to Paul to remain in Corinth because he had many people in this city. And so we might think, in our own context, that perhaps God has some people in Columbus, Ohio. But do you believe that he has many people in Columbus? In our tradition, we rightly emphasize God's sovereign grace, that it is deep, that it reaches to the lowest depths. But I'm afraid that we run the risk of committing a certain error. That for some reason we conclude that if God's grace is sovereign, it must also be miserly. That God's grace, in, in being able to reach down to the lowest depths, raises sinners, and yet, so it's rich in that sense, but it's miserly for scope of distribution. Is so that adequately express what paul says that god is rich in mercy we may operate wrongly under the assumption that is as as though because it is left to gods a god who is rich in mercy to save as though we somehow come to the conclusion that the saved will be few in number We are told instead that the saved are a great multitude, which no one could count. Now perhaps you might say, it's a great multitude which no one could count, but that's only because humanity is such a great multitude that none could count. That yes, the redeemed are this this innumerable crowd, but compared to the whole scope of humanity, there are rather small remnant, a rather small fragment, and that if you were to look at those who are lost, that that also is a a multitude that no one can count. Coming to our, our second point, that we see God's mercy is wide, not only for the sheer number that it saves, but also proportionally the number that it saves with respect to mankind as a whole that will there be more saved than are lost? Now, I want to be careful here. I don't want to be speculative. I don't want to go beyond what the scriptures say, and there are scholars, theologians, who have come to both sides of this question, and I don't want to speak beyond what we are warranted in the scriptures. I want to stick to what we can say from certainty from God's word. And yet I'm persuaded that in God's word we find hope that there will be a great many saved, even more than are lost. Pharaoh, in his days, he looked on the multiplying Israelites, said, Look, the people of the sons of Israel are more numerous and mightier than us. Has Pharaoh stopped trembling? Now that Christ has come, is it the case that this this concern that Pharaoh had that the, the sons of Israel are too numerous, has that concern gone away for the kingdom of darkness? You say, well, Israel was really relatively small in number. Pharaoh was using overstatement, even supposing so. He says it because he sees it as a foregone conclusion that the people of Israel will outnumber us and we are in danger. It was said by the women in the Old Testament that Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. What then might we conclude about David's Lord? If David is to have preeminence over Saul for his victories and his conquests, does it not follow that David's Lord will likewise have the eminency over everyone else that he will conquer more by his gospel. One writer reflecting on Isaiah 53, which says that the Lord's servant would see the travail of his soul and be satisfied, that he he would see his suffering and he would be satisfied with result and outcome of his suffering makes this comment in view of what he suffered on calvary we know that he will not be easily satisfied that in view of the sufferings that christ underwent at calvary he will one day look at that and he will he will be satisfied and say it has accomplished enough but will that come when he has seen the salvation of one or two or three or four? Or will he only be satisfied when he sees all of the nations gathered in? There is a wonderful description at the end of Revelation, Revelation chapter 21, where the bridal city comes down from heaven. And it's described as being a a, a woman uh, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The word adorned there is in that whole verse is alluding to Isaiah 49, which we read as part of our assurance of pardon, that Zion is a city that was made desolate, that was sent into exile, would once again put on her inhabitants like an ornament that a bride puts on. What's interesting about that word ornament into adorn, uh, as it appears as a noun in Isaiah and as it appears in a verbal form in, uh, in Revelation, it's the word cosmos, or based on the word cosmos, which is also the word for world. Now, ordinarily, when a word like that can have two meanings, I would say let's stick to the clear and obvious meaning that the context gives us and not, let's not try to shoehorn the other meaning into it. And quite clearly, it means ornament. Quite clearly, it means adorn. Let's not try to shoehorn the word or the, the sense of world into that statement. <laughs> it would be like saying that I went to uh, the horseshoe, the Buckeye Stadium, and I bought tickets and I went in and I enjoyed the game and to think that by talking about enjoying the game, you thought I was talking about enjoying a piece of venison. That's a d- the word "game" can have two meanings, and one meaning is clearly in view, and the other is not. But if I were to tell you that I went hunting, that I shot a deer, I took it to the meat processor, and then from the meat processor, I went to the stadium where I enjoyed the game, you would be justified in thinking, well, maybe there's a, a play on words here. Maybe there's both senses of the word in view. I would suggest to you that that that's what is going on when John speaks of a bride having been cosmosed for her husband. That yes, the the clear upfront meaning is, is quite simply that she has been adorned for her husband. But in light of the fact that Isaiah says that adornment is the inhabitants who will live in her. And in light of the fact that John has so frequently and so masterfully used the word world, cosmos, throughout his writings. But I'm hard-pressed to think that he didn't see a pun or a connection or a wordplay there, that for the bride to be adorned is for the brides to have conquered the world, to have put on the inhabitants of the world. And that it is then that she is ready to be presented To her husband. The caveat. This is not to preach universalism. Scripture's teaching is clear. That there will be some that are lost. And that number is dreadful. But Christ will have dominion. Over the nations. Lest you think this is. Too far afield from a reformed heritage. Uh, Consider what what these writers say, and if you don't recognize these names, don't worry about it, but if you do recognize them, you you can see that this view that I'm trying to argue for and put forward before you uh, (coughs) has, has a pedigree. A. A. Hodge writes this, my father, referring to Charles Hodge, at the close of his long life spent in defense of Calvinism, wrote on one of his conference papers in Trembling Characters a little while before he died, I am fully persuaded that the vast majority of the human race will share in the beatitudes and glories of our Lord's redemption. That same Charles Hodge wrote in his systematic theology, we have reason to believe that the number of the finally lost in comparison with the whole number of the saved will be very inconsiderable. Our blessed Lord, when surrounded by the innumerable company of the redeemed, will be hailed as the Savior of men, as the Lamb that bore the sins of the world. Likewise, this was the position of B.B. Warfield. You say, all of the texts that have been suggested to you are, are suggestive I've referred to you theologians who have held this position, but but show me convincingly from the word of God, where does it say that the saved will be more than the lost? Who's in our call to worship? Isaiah 54. Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one, that's Zion, will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman. Again, we raise the question, is this just poetic and metaphorical speech? No, Paul in Galatians 4 applies this, and he says that this, this barren woman who now bears more offspring refers to the Jerusalem that is above, and she is our mother. And then he quotes this passage saying that she will bear more than the married woman. When we ask who is the married woman, I would suggest to you that it is those who are born merely according to the flesh, those who are born according to the natural manner of begetting. The Zion above shall be more populous than the offspring of the married woman, of those begotten merely after the flesh. Thirdly, God's mercy is wide because of the diversity of the objects that it saves. God's mercy is not exhaustively put on display when only one or two have been saved, or when only one or two thousand, where only one or two million have been saved. But it requires the sum total of the redeemed to illustrate just how wide and rich his mercy is. If you read John's gospel, one of the themes that shows up is just how Christ fills everything, that he himself is full of grace and truth, and yet, whenever there's a container, it's filled up to the brim and then overflowing. So at the wedding of Cana, the water jars are filled up to the brim. It cannot contain all the wine that Jesus is capable of producing. Jesus feeds the crowd, and they're filled, and then after they're filled, twelve baskets are filled. Mary comes and anoints Jesus' feet in the fragrance of the Messiah, fills the house. After the resurrection, the disciples are fishing and they haul in a large catch of fish. And the net is so filled with fish that they can't uh, carry it in, draw it in. Then John concludes by saying that if the whole world were filled with books written about what Jesus Christ did and said... That the world could not contain all the books that would be written. That the revelation of the mercy of God in Christ is so full that wherever it finds it, a container, it fills it and overflows it and bursts its container. That the wine pots cannot hold it, the fish nets cannot hold it, the crowds cannot hold it. The world itself cannot hold the vast revelation of God's mercy that has taken place in Jesus Christ. And so it requires a diverse canvas in order to make itself known. We have a, a, a book sitting at home, a collection of paintings by Norman Rockwell. And one of the, uh, uh, within this book, the, the author makes comments every now and again about whether this was one of Rockwell's you know, mature paintings or one of his best or whether it was you know, one of his less mature paintings. And one of the things that makes Rockwell or or any other painter uh, renowned is not simply that he has one masterpiece and then everything else is forgotten. But it's that he can do it again and again and again and again. And it's different each time. Each one is different and and shows forth some different facets, some different aspect of the artist's genius. So it is with the saints of God. That though the host is innumerable, each one shows forth God's mercy in a slightly different way. And each time it's, it's new, it's fresh, and it takes all of them together to adequately begin to get a picture of a God who is rich in mercy. But no one objects, no one painting fully shows forth its creator's abilities. And so we read in Revelation chapter 7 that men from all tongues come to worship the Lamb. English has about 170,000 words in the dictionary. It's a very versatile language. Spanish by comparison, has about 93,000 words. Yet English, with all of its uh, flexibility, all of its uh, skill at being able to express praise and poetry, isn't enough. The praises of Christ are too big for the English language. The praises of Christ are too big for English and Spanish put together. that that the glories of Christ so transcend even our languages that it's, it's not just that one language is going to be able to adequately express all that Christ is. It's going to take all the languages together. It will take all the nations together. If the languages are like a wine pot, they're filled up to the brim. If they're like a net... They will be so heavy with the praises of Christ that they cannot be drawn in. So some points of application. First, as we consider the diversity of God's rich mercy. Do not lose hope as you look at loved ones around you who don't have the same conversion experience that you do. God's grace is too big for there to be only one kind of conversion story. God's grace is big enough. Indeed, it is so big that it must express itself in more than just one way. And so you will have a deathbed convert. Somebody says, I didn't believe all my life. But then, with my dying breath, I begged for mercy in the name of Christ. And here I am. Experiencing eternal joys, that that shows forth God's mercy in its own unique way. But since then so does also the story of the child who says, from the time I was an infant, <clears throat> my parents raised me in the Christian faith. When I was a kid, I thought we prayed because that's the way I thought the food got cooled off. I didn't even understand prayer, but it was just so much a part of my life from my infancy that it's uh, this is the God whom I've served from childhood. that there will be some who say I was converted by a gospel tract some stranger just handed it to me don't know his name and that's how I came to faith and that shows forth God's grace but then there will be another who says I came to church for years and years and I was skeptical and very slowly over the course of years I was drawn in and then at some point I was persuaded I was converted that no one type of experience is going to exhaustively portray a God who is rich in mercy. It takes all the saints together. It takes an innumerable multitude in order to adequately express what it means for God to be rich in mercy. Secondly, as a point of application... This should not lead us to complacency, but to hope and prayer. To say that many will be saved, to even say that a majority might be saved, is not to lead us into sitting on our hands and say it'll all work itself out, but it should encourage us to prayer that it should encourage us to plead all the more fervently with our God that he would, in fact, save, that he would, in fact, send out more labors into a harvest that is ripe for the ingathering. This should not in any way lead us to, to a laziness, but to a fervency and ardentness in our desire to see the lost brought in. And to that end, we can all be praying. Thirdly, there is the question of perhaps young men in our own congregation. Not not everyone is called to pastoral ministry. And it's fine if that's not the case, that God is delighted when you pursue the vocation that he has called you to. But is it worth considering whether or not you, young man, Might be called to preach the glorious gospel of Christ, to preach a God who is rich in mercy. And now, finally, as a point of application for each of us, and that is to say, while we have considered a God who is rich in mercy, while we rejoice and find comfort in the fact that the multitude is so great that no one will be able to count it, we must make sure of ourselves that we are among that multitude. What good will it do for you personally? What, what, what benefit will it be to you if God saves a great company of sinners, but you don't find yourselves among that company? And so seek, seek to enter into Christ's kingdom through faith in him, persevering through whatever tribulations might lie in your way until you join that great company in which you will see what the apostle saw, a great crowd that no one could number, singing praises to the Lamb. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the work of your Son in coming to save the lost. We thank you for those words that are recorded for us in John's Gospel, that he is the one who takes away the sin of the world, that he is the Savior of the world, that he has overcome the world, and that the world has gone after him. We pray that you would advance your kingdom in our hearts and also within our communities that there would indeed be many of your people here that you would be pleased to bring to everlasting life through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.